If you have your Bibles, uh, please take them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. We continue in uh, where we left off last week. Last week, uh, so it's a little bit. Some of those of you that are visiting with us this week, a little bit of a uh, you're kind of jumping in. You may feel like, oh, it sounds like half of a message. Well, yeah, kind of. It is half a message. Uh, we did have the other half last week, and uh, just uh, there was quite a bit of detail, quite a bit of information. We just kind of thought we'd kind of push uh, divide the message in half. So this is the second half of last week's message <clears throat> uh, that we'll be looking at. I guess the Lord knew that I needed to think about it a little bit more uh, before I preached this message. So that's why I'm thankful to God to give us time like that. Well, uh, I should add another I kind of get up. Whenever I get up here from, I lead pastoral prayer and then I get up here. It's like, uh, it's great. Uh, the church doubles in size by the time I stand here. And I see so many of you out there that, and particularly those of you that are back for Thanksgiving. Uh, I want to give a shout out to all you. Those of you that are back for Thanksgiving with family, with friends, uh, we're just so glad to have you back with us. Uh, it's good to see you. And uh, if you're visiting with us, you're here for Thanksgiving, or uh, just uh, uh, I'm great, glad that uh, you would come back home to this family on Thanksgiving uh, Sunday, if you will. So uh, hopefully you had a wonderful time with family, and uh, God be with you as you go back to your home, your, wherever you're wherever you came from, wherever you work and go to school, and may God continue to be with you wherever uh, he leads you. All right, <clears throat> Isaiah 36 and 37 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to just pick up where we kind of left off, a little bit where we left off, but uh, so with a little bit of review in the beginning. All right, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word now as we open it up. May your spirit lead us and give us insight into your word. Lord, we cannot understand, we cannot grasp anything which we read uh, we, from your word apart from your spirit. And so we ask, Father, of what we desperately need. We have need of your spirit to move in our, in, our, in our midst, among us as a church, but also in each of us individually. Cause your word to, uh, to go forth and not return void. Lord, cause each and every one here to hear what you want them to hear from your word this morning. May they hear it as if from your lips to their hearts, that they would walk away with their hearts convicted of, the, of what you want them to be convicted of, strengthened as they need to be strengthened, Lord, and encouraged. Father, we pray that we would respond to your word with worship, glorying in you, and wondering and being awed by your power and your wisdom and your sovereignty and that we would learn to trust in you more day by day these things we pray in jesus name amen when jesus walked on earth many as you know in those days were upset about the government not the local jewish government but the government that was really in control of all israel and that if you that if you know your history was the roman government the Roman Empire. Uh, Judah was a, a small little province underneath the Roman rule. And, and that's why, uh, and many, for many of them, they, they hated to be ruled by these Gentiles. They had been ruled by the Gentiles for a long, to long time. And they desperately looked for the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come, for they had read in the prophets that the Messiah would come and deliver them from oppression, deliver them from their enemies. 
And so you can imagine when Jesus walked on earth, and, and sometimes you read in the, in the Gospels how people wanted to make him king right away because they wanted that kind of physical deliverance from Rome. So you can get the sense, and just if you remember the, all that history, uh, that it was a time when many in the land were opposed, were upset about who was ruling over them. Not too different from even our days. Many in our nation, too, are upset about who is ruling them now and who's, or who's going to rule them in a few months from now. In those days, though, as we go back to Jesus' day, the emperor was a man named Tiberius Caesar Augustus. And you can, we have evidence of who he was because of coins, for instance, that bore his image. Those coins that bore his image had little inscriptions on it. Basically declaring him to be a son of the divine Augustus. Augustus Caesar was his, adopt, was his father who adopted him. And so to be son of the divine God was to be call, was declare yourself, just as Jesus called himself the son of God, to call yourself divine as well. He was son of divine Augustus. And then on the, also on those very same coins, he would be called the Pontifex Maximus, which is... The high priest, the pontifex is actually, we still call the pope that, or we don't call him, but people call him the pontifex, uh, the maximus, the high priest, the great priest, the one who is first in, 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 as, a, as the intermediary between God and man. So you can, you can imagine a ruler who calls himself divine and calls himself the, the high priest, well, can you say megalomaniac? Yes, you can. And you think we have uh, interesting leaders of our days. Well, well in any case, uh, just that to introduce you that, hey, um, strange rulers, uh, rulers that you don't like are not uncommon. But as you know, and according to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, that one day Jesus, when he was walking about doing his teaching ministry, was opposed uh, by the Pharisees and the Herodians, two very dis- different groups. And they, saw, they actually started to work together to trap Jesus with the question, as you may know, just kind of thinking about the coin that we see up here, about whether a faithful Jew should pay the poll tax to Caesar. In response, you know how Jesus answered, didn't he? He answered, show me the coin. Show me the coin that was used to pay. And, and they handed him the coin with that image of Caesar. And then Jesus, of course, said those profound words that amazed everyone. It shut up every mouth because no one thought, wow, that was deep. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The coin which bore the image of Caesar, obviously, belonged to Caesar. So give it to him. But then... The things that are belong to God, the things that bear God's image, give that to him. The coins, the denarius of those days belong to Caesar. Pay your poll tax. But men and women, Jesus implied by his answer, men and women like you and me today who are created and bear the image of God belong to God. We are to render to God the things that belong to him. And among the things that belong to him is our worship. All men are called and women are called to worship. He deserves our obedience. He deserves our service. And he deserves our trust. 
render to God the things that are God's. And if we render ourselves to God, we are included in that, is that we ought to trust in him. We ought to trust in him with our whole heart, Solomon says. Not just with words, but with an attitude of trust within our souls. And a trust that reflects in how we live our lives. Trust is more than just saying it. Trust impacts how we think and how we live. As Solomon says, uh, I put up the, the well-known proverb, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, that's how you live. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. As we look at part two of this uh, passage this morning, again, we ask the question, whom or in whom do you trust? That is the main lesson. That's the main question that's posed to us. And we are to, we are to look at the example of the Israelites and how they responded. And we respond in the same. Who will the Israelites trust to save them in the day of distress? In the day of rebuke? In the day of rejection? Whom do you trust in the day of distress? In a day of rebuke? In the day of rejection? Whom do you trust not just with your head, but with your heart. Not just in here, but when you walk and live daily out there. As we look at Isaiah 36, 39, uh, we looked at this last week. We kind of just briefly, I'll throw it back up. It's a transition between the first and second half of Isaiah. The first two chapters, 36 and 37, provide a historical backdrop to chapters 1 through 35. Uh, especially with the looming thread of the Assyrians that were mentioned throughout. It kind of brings conclusion to the story of the Assyrians and how God would use them. Last week, and, and so last week we begun this message. This week we'll continue, and then next week we'll actually we'll continue the, the latter part of chapter 37. We'll be examining all these details regarding the historical event of the assault or the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And we looked at our outline, pretty simple outline for us, three scenes from the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem that cause us to examine in whom do you trust. And so hopefully we'll just walk through these, these scenes again and, cause, and we would, it would cause us, cause you to answer the question, in whom do I trust? Well, a little bit of review then. Last week uh, we looked at how in the verses 1 to 10 of chapter 36, the Lord's, the leader's trust is challenged. The, the leaders of Israel, King Hezekiah, his government, his administration, were all challenged by the attack of the, Syrian, the Assyrians. We looked a little bit at the setting in verses 1 to 2. And I want to read again those, those first two verses for us because it is important to remember the setting. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rapshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Remember again that the 14th year of King Hezekiah is 701 BC, 21 years removed from when the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by Assyria as well. But now the Assyrian army under King Sennacherib was marching against the southern kingdom of Judah. 
He had come from the north, and uh, finally I, I got a map. Oh, it's just so oh, it looks terrible up there. It's okay. Uh, just believe you. It looks great on the computer screen, but mm. anyways, we'll get that fixed someday. Well, anyways, this map, it would show you how he had come from the north and swept down through Judah, conquering all the fortified cities and arriving a little bit later down at uh, Lachish. Yeah. He sent from Lachish while he was, uh, the two, fort- two cities were reigning, Lachish and Jerusalem. And while he was sieging, besieging Lachish, he sent a part of his force, about 185,000 at least, northeast to Jerusalem, uh, where the army was basically lay siege to Jerusalem and call for the surrender. Surrender. We're introduced to one of the uh, leaders of this army named Rapshika, or the Rapshika. It was a title given to a high chief official who acted then as the spokesman. And uh, when you, uh, when you kind of, all the words, the challenges that the leaders face as well as the people face are spoken on behalf of Sennacherib by this Rapshika. What's kind of, or quite significant, is that of the location that's mentioned in verse 2, and we talked about it last week, the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. And this is a reference, this is a very uh, familiar place. It was a, uh, mentioned earlier in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, <coughs> as being the very place that Isaiah had gone to meet King Ahaz when Israel was also under another threat, the Aram-Israel alliance. But you remember, after Isaiah had spoken to Ahaz and told him to trust in the Lord, King Ahaz didn't trust God. He failed to trust God. In fact, he refused to ask God for a sign. Instead, he turned to Assyria for help. He gave, gave money and gave gold to Assyria, and Assyria then came and delivered him from the Aram and Israel. But it was because of that refusal that God then had promised to judge Judah with the king of Assyria. And that was chapter 7, verse 17. And so we'd, through, from that point on, you would see the mention of Assyria, this impending uh, judgment that was coming because, at the hands of Assyria because of God's, because of God's uh, judgment. Now in our chapter, Assyria is knocking again at the door, and Rapshika is standing at the very same place that Isaiah had stood. <coughs> it was a very symbolic reminder to the people of God that God was giving them a second chance to respond, that this time, will the king of Judah, will Hezekiah put his trust in the Lord? This time, will he seek the word of God? Will he heed the word of God? This time, will the people and all of Israel respond in trust in their God and not the nations as they had been doing? The words of the Rapshika, as we looked at last week, did not make it easy. His challenge we saw in verse 3 to 10. And the main question that he asked and challenged them really was from verse 5. In whom do you trust or on whom do you rely? That word trust or rely, uh, Hebrew, the Hebrew word, is found several times in this passage. And come, it becomes a really a main theme. The question is, who is your trust? He challenged, the, the Rapshika challenged Hezekiah and his leaders in his administration with four different challenges. He challenged them particularly in their trust in Egypt, their political alliances, their trust in other governments. He was aware of their alliance with Egypt, the Rapshika, and so the Rapshika tells them that they should not put their trust in Egypt. Ironically, we remember back in chapters 30 and 31, God had warned Judah of the very same thing. Don't put your trust in Egypt. They're not going to be able to help you. 
the warning of the rapture was that no human government is able to deliver you. And that was, we took, uh, hopefully we took uh, that to heart even last week. Remember that we should be careful not to put our trust in human government before, man, before God. Next, Rapshika challenged them in their trust in the Lord. Uh, he had based his challenge on a misunderstanding of all that Hezekiah was doing to do reform in the nation of Israel. We saw that Second Chronicles 29 and 31, how Hezekiah brought about major reforms to the worship of God including tearing down all the high places, all the uh, Asherah poles, all the idolatrous places of worship and altars that had been used throughout Judah. But thinking that Hezekiah had actually torn down places of worship of the Lord, the Rapshika says to them, well, look, if your God cannot even keep Hezekiah from tearing down his altars, then certainly he is no match. He is too weak to even resist the mightier king of Sennacherib. God is unable to help you. Thirdly, he challenged them to, to not tr- trust in their military might. Reminded them that they were weak. He mocked Judah's weakness by even offering to give them 2,000 horses. Even assuming that they could find enough re- riders on them, he challenged them and said, you, not, you would not even be able to defeat one of the least of our military leaders our, in our army. Then one more t- time in verse in verse 10, the Rapshika challenged them again with their trust in the Lord. Not only is he unable to help you, but he's against you, he says. The Rapshika's words strike fear because it claims, he claims that the Lord himself had told Sennacherib to go up against Judah and destroy it. And it however, his words were half-truths, as we looked at. And we learned that that's how the enemy works. He creates fear by mixing enough error with truth to make you question the Lord. So the Rapshika's words, all that we looked at last week, really challenged Hezekiah, challenged the king, challenged his, polit- his, uh, his administration, his leaders, to question in whom do they trust? In whom are they relying upon that they would rebel against the king of Assyria? As the nation's leaders, would they put their trust in political alliances? Would they put their trust in military might? Or would they put their trust in God? Even if the Rapshika is at your door and saying, you know, your God's not going to help you. Your God's unable to help you. He's actually against you. And sometimes we believe those lies. But we, as we understand the scriptures, the people of God are called to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. Acknowledge him in all our ways and he will make our path straight. As leaders, especially those of us as leaders here in the church, but even if any of us here are leaders in our community, in our political realm, our response, how we react to difficult situations, times of distress, is it serve as an example and encouragement to the people who follow us? We need leaders who will be examples of faith in God, who will put their trust in God first. So that's what we looked all this all last week. 
not only is the leader's trust in the Lord uh, was challenged by Rapshika, but we pick up then in verse 11 today, we start seeing that the people themselves, their own trust in God is also challenged. Now, their trust is challenged in two ways, in two ways. And uh, we can, hopefully we can learn from this. The, the essence of the challenge are, are pretty much similar, but Rapshika kind of, we can kind of see it, it comes in, uh, in two parts. First of all, the people's trust in Hezekiah is challenged by Rapshika. Pick up in verse 11. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rapshika, these are the, uh, the delegation of Israel, of Judah, and said, said to Rapshika, speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak with us in Judean, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. The words here that were earlier spoken by the Rapshika were so disheartening that Hezekiah's emissaries, his, his leaders, didn't want the people to hear it. Now, sometimes we can just look here and say, well, well man, that's, that's, you can kind of um, look at that and say, and blame them and say, oh, man, that's, look at those political leaders scheming and all that stuff. But there's another way to look at this as well is that political leaders also have a responsibility to, to protect and guard. You know, sometimes we, or even uh, leaders in any sense, I think of myself as a parent, particularly with my, Cindy and myself, uh, it may not be helpful right now at Kiara's age to talk to her about everything that is going on in the world. Sometimes there are things that we talk about. We say, well, let's spell it out, you know. It's not because we're evil. We're malicious to her. Uh, We'll talk in, you know, Chinese, but she's starting to pick that up. So um, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, We have to talk in a little bit different because what we want to talk about, or there are some things that we want to keep from her because we feel that right now at her age, uh, she she would be more harmed by or we're not ready uh, to hear it yet. And, and if you kind of, sometimes when it comes to political leaders, we can always look at them with a skeptical eye, cynical eye. Like, I, I, I know I tend to do that and say, oh, they're just trying to hide stuff. They're, trying to, they're not being transparent. They're being, you know, but sometimes, um, I just, when I think, thought about this, huh, we could, it could just as well see that maybe they are doing it for the good of the people. That they, they don't want the people to hear the lies, the, the lies and the, the half-truths that were being spoken by Rapshika. And so they, so they requested here of the Rapshika, speak to us in, in Hebrew, in Judean language, not in Aramaic. So we can see it that way too. But I mean, that's just kind of a, a little small side, but I just thought it kind of interesting. But as we see, the Rapshika's plan was to undermine the morale of the nation. He doesn't, even though he's talking to the leaders, he really wants to, he knows that to be effective is to undermine the morale of the whole people, the whole army, the whole people. And that's, that's just good, that's good military strategy. So we read then verse 12. But Rapshika said, has my master sent me only to your master and to you and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Rapshika stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. God had placed Hezekiah as king over Judah. And we understand, when you understand the Old Testament, that there is a unique relationship of the king of Judah over the people of God. That he was representative of them. That he was, he was a, a symbol and a promise, really, 
of that future king who would come, the Messiah who would rule over all Israel. To, and how they responded to the king was how they were to respond. They would respond to their God and their Messiah. But not only that, just in general, kings are really just uh, the kings of, of Israel, the kings of any days are really symbols of God's authority. Even today, we're reminded that we have a government. You know, our government, according to Romans 13, is established by God. There's no authority that is, exists that is not from God. And so governments even today are those established from God, from God. We as the people who are under authority, whether governments, whether our parents, whether our employers, whether our, our teachers, are called to submit to them as those who God has placed over us. And, that, and the people saw their, understood their king as that. But the Rapshika's words were calling the people of Israel, no, don't trust in your king. Don't trust in your leader. Which was in really, in essence, don't trust in the God who put the king over you. Now, 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 1 to 8, uh, actually tells us a lot about Hezekiah, what kind of man he was. Hezekiah had done much to prepare Jerusalem, not only to reform, uh, reform the nation, but he'd also prepared the nation for Sennacherib's assault. We see some very interesting details there that <coughs> we don't get anywhere else. But most importantly, there in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 78, we see these words. We see how King Hezekiah led Israel. How his trust was an example for the people of God. Here were his, his words that he spoke to the people of, of Israel, people of Judah. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. That's a, just a great example of what happened, what God did. The people trusted in their king to deliver them. They put their trust in his words. He had spoken the words. And he was to say, I will deliver you. He said, put our trust in God. He will deliver us. And that was the responsibility of the king of Judah. And that's what he did, and not only according to St. Chronicles, but we'll see that uh, later on in, 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 our, in Isaiah as well. The Ravshika's challenge and, and uh, challenge of King Hezekiah to, for the people made a point that was, in a sense, half, another half-truth. There is definitely a sense where Hezekiah cannot deliver you. He cannot, Right? Because he's just a man. But we understand that Hezekiah, that God uses men like Hezekiah. He uses mankind, men and women, instruments for his, of his to deliver his people. And he, he'll use Hezekiah to remind the people to trust the Lord. To put their faith in God who would be able to deliver them. And so... Rapshka had challenged them to put their, of their, challenged their trust in Hezekiah. And that leads us to the second way that the people's trust was challenged. Not only were they challenged in the trust of Hezekiah, but they were challenged in their trust in the Lord as well. We see this in verse 15 to 20. 
Now, the Rashika was saying that the Lord will not be able to deliver them, right? And his argument here is, is a twofold argument. First, he offered uh, to them uh, <clears throat> comfort and peace. He offered them what he believed that the Lord, their God, would not be able to give them. In place, he had already mentioned that these, because of the siege that they were under, that they were going to be doomed to eat their own dung and, and drink their own urine. He offers them comfort and peace. Listen to verse 15 and 17. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of his vine, and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and new wine. A land of bread and vineyards. Again, he's just challenging. Don't put your trust in the Lord. Don't believe what Hezekiah is saying. To try to, don't let him fool you into saying that you're actually going to trust in the Lord. Those words aren't going to help you. I'll tell you what will help you though. Turn to me. Put your trust in my king. And you will be able to eat of your own vine. You'll eat of your fig trees. Remember those fig trees? Oh, man, those good fig trees. You'll have to drink of the waters. You'll have to remember the waters of your sister? He, didn't know, he, he did not know that Hezekiah had a water, a water source inside the city. He thought they were dying of thirst in there. You'll drink water, fresh water. Just come to me. Come to my, bow your, bow your knee to my king. And this was, this, he would, you can imagine this would have been compelling. The alternative is you can eat your own dung or drink your own urine, or you can eat figs and drink wine and drink fresh water. Which one sounds better to you? Okay? I think I know what sounds better. It is appealing to the masses. And there, there probably at this time, there probably was a limitation of food, and there would, hunger might have been setting in. And though the tempting proposition, as it were, and, he adds at the end, reminds him of the, the reality of what would actually take place of, because of Assyrians' foreign policy is that they would eventually be departed. Of course, you'd be departed. I'll move you to another land where you'll also be very fertile and you'll have food and drink all you want to. But you'll have to go someplace else. Just bow your knee to me. So he offered them comfort and peace and place of hunger, offering them what he believed that their God would not be able to give them, but his Lord would be able to. But secondly, he challenged them and challenged them directly and says, the very fact is your Lord's not even going to be able to deliver you at all because none of the other gods of the nations were able to resist Sennacherib up to this point. Verse 18, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you saying, the Lord will deliver us. Again, you see this constant emphasis. Hezekiah has been telling the people that the God will deliver us. He's got, and he's challenging them, no, the God, your God will not. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the, hand, from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Rashka goes through a series of rhetorical questions. 
questions that they already knew the answers. No, none of the other gods of the nations have been able to deliver them from the hands of the king of Assyria. Not a single one, not Hamath, Arpath, Sepharvaim, Samaria had been able to deliver them. And Samaria had fallen into idol, idol worship and followed many of the, same, the gods of the nations. None of those gods' lands had delivered themselves from Sennacherib. And so the rhetorical the rhetoric question really expected them to, say, to them to ask, think to themselves, well, if none of the gods did, then neither will our God. Rapshika basically has blasphemed against God, had actually compared him to the gods of nations. And for the Israelites, if they would believe his lies, would blaspheme God too, because they would say, well, then our God is the same as the gods of the nations. Is your God the same as the gods of the nations? When we don't trust in him, when we think he won't deliver, that's what we're doing. We're just putting him just like the idols, just like that idol on the mantle of my parents' home when we used to offer incense. It's like those gods, the ones where you actually have to put chickens and, 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 <coughs> and fruits in front of every, every month. But those idols did not do anything for us. When we don't, and when we don't trust in God, we put, make God into like an idol. We agree with the rapture where we believe the lies. We fail to understand and remember that the idols, the gods of the nations, are simply idols created by the, the, by the imagination of man. Only God is the one true living God. And he alone is able to deliver his people. Just as King Hezekiah had reminded them. As the people of God, we understand that God sovereignly places leaders over us. And whether in government, at work, at school, or even in church. And, our, uh, and there is not a single leader in our lives that's perfect. Okay, not a single one. You know, you just think about your parents. They loved you so much. They loved us so much. They gave everything they could to us. But even they are not perfect. Our governments are not very perfect. Your church leaders, by far not perfect. Your teachers, not perfect. But yet, God says in his word, the rulers he places over us are established by God and the authority that they wield is from him. They have no authority apart from him. And we, as under those under authority, are to submit to them and trust their leadership. Especially when that leadership points us to the Lord. But when that leadership doesn't point us to the Lord, those are times that we can put our trust in the Lord as well. We can put our trust that even if there is a wicked person as, as my leader, as my teacher, my employer, my, my president, my king, my you know, my parents. Is not God the one true living God? Is not, our, is not he still able to control and sovereignly work through evil men and women in our, in our lives? Isn't he able to bring about the accomplishment of his purposes, his will for the, our good? We can trust in him for that. 
we can trust in you. Yes, we may not trust the evil people in our lives, and we might wonder if they're really working for good, but we can trust God is going to work in and through the leaders in our lives. We can believe that. We can especially see it as far, particularly as our, our nation is, has been in upheaval since our elections, and uh, at least among certain part, half of the nation. We'll see it because we've seen it, that God is trustworthy the last four years, the last eight years, the last 20 and 100 years, and he'll be just as faithful to trust in in the next four, in the next eight, the next 20, and the next 100 years, whoever is in the political uh, ruler, uh, whoever is the ruler of our land. As the people of God, we need to learn to trust, continue to trust in him. Well, the third scene, we see this manifest in how the people and how the king continue to respond to the Lord. And we'll see it actually fleshed out for us next week. But why don't we just briefly look at how Judah's trust is demonstrated in verse 36, 21 through 37, 4. We see that the people's response in verse 21 first. The people, you can imagine, they're given this great opportunity to live, essentially. And you got to think about this. And I tried to meditate upon this. What would I do as a man sitting on there on the wall? And my uh, wife and my three young kids are at home. And we're surrounded by an enemy that basically, uh, as far as I can tell, as far as I can tell, is going to demolish us. We're going to die. I'm going to watch my wife and my children, probably my children first because they're younger. They're going to die first of hunger or thirst. This is, this is siege. What would I be tempted to do while sitting on that wall? I was like, will you promise to give us safe passage? I'm not going to wait for my leaders to, I'm not going to, I'll be tempted, I'm going to wait for my leaders to do it. I'm, I'm going to speak out. I'm going to say, can some of us go? <laughs> I start talking with my, hey, let's all, let's sneak out, you know. We want to live. They desire to live. But look at the people's response. And, that's, and understand that. I mean, maybe that's just me, the coward that I am, the man who just doesn't want to suffer, who doesn't really want to see my family die. I was thinking, maybe that's what I'd do. I don't know. I hope I'd trust in the Lord. But look what the people response. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. They submitted to their king. They followed their king's example. And I was, this is really just blows my mind because the people put their trust in their king. They put their trust in their king. They, they submitted to the king. They responded to what he said. Don't answer him. Even though they all heard the offer, they'd probably heard they had maybe had heard about a serious policy of basically conquering lands and moving them. And I'm sure that Sanak, uh, uh, the Rapshika and Sanaka were sincere that they would allow them to, to live and move to a different land. They had done that for Samaria. But they didn't reply. They were silent. They didn't flee. They didn't rebel against Hezekiah. 
They silently trusted in their king because their king called them to trust in the Lord. And that's what they were doing. They were trusting in their king and they were trusting in their Lord. We move to verse 22 to the rest of the chapter. We see Hezekiah's response. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shemna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rapshika. The torn clothes uh, reflected their mourning over their distressing news. And when King Hezekiah heard it, verse 1 of chapter 37, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Hezekiah also, by tearing his clothes, reflected his mourning. And you kind of wonder, what are they mourning about? Hezekiah had recognized that the Assyrian attack was God's judgment for Judah's sin. Now, when you look later on in verse 3, Hezekiah will say, This day is a day of distress, a day of rebuke and rejection. He recognizes that their judgment is God's rebuke upon the land of Israel. He remembers all that Isaiah had said, had promised, that Assyria would come as a judgment because this is God's rebuke against Ahaz and, and the people of Judah for not trusting in the Lord. And so he demonstrated his mourning, his repentance, not only himself, but on behalf of the people. He, and then where was, what was his response? He covered himself with silence and he entered the house of the Lord. He went to where the Lord, to meet the Lord. He sought God in the midst of it. We need to seek God in the midst of our turmoils. His trust was in the Lord. He sought out God's, and he sought out God, not only God, but he sought out God's word. He sought out the prophet Isaiah to hear from God. Verse two through four. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rapshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. Hezekiah here asked Isaiah to pray on their behalf. That God would rebuke Sennacherib for his blasphemy. Hezekiah heard the words. He knows what Sennacherib is saying. He knows that these are lies. These are not, these are half-truths. These are blasphemy. These are equating our living, one true living God with the gods of the world. He knows that this is a, a reproach upon God. A blasphemy against God. But even before he asks for prayer... He begins with a recognition that their distress is a result of their own sin. That we saw, we mentioned in, in verse 3. He knows that it's a day of rebuke. It's a distress because of rebuke. And sometimes when we go through trials, and that's just that general principle, whenever we go through trials, it's always healthy for us just to examine, is this perhaps God's hand of d- discipline upon my life? That God may be allowing this to take place in my life because I've sinned and I'm in sin. And God just wants me like a loving father to learn to turn away from sin and turn to him. Perhaps. Not always, but perhaps. But Hezekiah recognizes it for that because he remembers what God's word said. 
his trust, his, uh, remember, is that God is, that, that, that the people of God, the Judah and Israel, have a special relationship with the Lord. And God will not forsake his covenant. He knows that God, because of this covenant, would never forsake them, would always deliver them. He remembers, he'll remember later on that God alone is the living God, is the Lord. And not any man, not, any, not in, even, even if he was the most powerful man on the planet, can deliver them. Not any, only God can. Because he alone is God. Later on we'll look at it, or next week we'll look at it, chapter 37, verse 20. I just I want to read it for you. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. This is, going to be, this is going to be Hezekiah's prayer later on. That all the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Our God is not like the other gods. Our God alone is the true and living God. That's going to be the point of next week's message. But he, but he pray, asks Isaiah to pray for them. And that the God, he knows that God will rebuke, uh, Rapshika will rebuke this king of Syria because God will not, if he does not do it for the sake of his own people, he will do it for the sake of his own name. He will bring, he will defend his name. He will bring, and those who will blaspheme the living God will f- receive a res- or an appropriate re- response from the Lord. So we conclude then just simply that with these first these uh, few verses that Hezekiah put his trust in the Lord. Hezekiah was King Hezekiah was, is an example for us, uh, example for many of us who are leaders. He led the leaders and the people of God to trust in the Lord, and we, uh, as many of us who are leaders of this church have a responsibility to, to lead and be examples of trust in the Lord. It's not to say that our leaders never ought to say, well, I'm afraid. If you're not afraid or you're not overwhelmed or you're not discouraged, there's no opportunity to trust in the Lord, right? It's because we're afraid. It's because I'm a little discouraged. Because I feel a little overwhelmed. That's the opportunity for God, where God wants me to trust in him. It's because I don't know what's going to happen in this year. It's because, because we're weak. We need to trust in the Lord. Hezekiah led his, the nation leaders and people of God to trust in him and those of us here are leaders we need to do the same as the people of God as the church of God in our days as a particularly as a nation we face uncertain days with a new president new administration things are going to change in our days as a church we face uncertain days Lord willing we may find an, another associate, an associate pastor, but even with a new associate pastor, things will change. But in days of uncertainty or worse, in days of distress, let us, as the people of God, put our trust in the Lord. Put our trust that God's in, in the one who is the one true and living God, the one who is in control of all things. He's in control of your lives. He will work out all our circumstances for our good.
in whom do you trust? May we find that our trust is in the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us (coughs) that you, God, are not like the gods of this earth, not like the gods of the nations, all false gods, idols. You are the true and living God. You are the one who is in control of all things, sovereign. You are the one who holds all authority and that delegates authority to those in authority above us. Lord, there is no, there's no power on earth that, re, that has any power except from you. Father, we, we pray that as those who are under authority, as those who face uh, maybe uncertain days, as a, maybe as a nation as even, or as a church even, Lord, that our trust would, maybe, would be kept upon you, that we would be stayed upon you. May our hearts find complete rest in you because you are the solid rock. You are our refuge, Lord. You are the eternal God. You do not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, we pray that as your people, we will continually continually put our trust in you. as Hezekiah and the people of Judah did. Thank you for their example. Thank you for your word, Father. Cause your people to be encouraged by your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.